particular time, the Romans had captured him and they were wanting to put him on trial. And he said, is it lawful for you to put me on trial as a Roman citizen? See, Paul was both fully Jewish, but also a Roman citizen. And he had the right to appeal to Caesar. So Paul went on this boat journey that you may recall, and he told the guys, hey, don't go any further. They said, what do you know, Paul? You're not a sailor. So they went on, and they had a shipwreck just like he said they would. Remember, he's bitten by the snake that was coming out of the fire, and he shook it off. He ends up in Rome awaiting for his opportunity to give his defense or for this trial before Caesar. I think that part of the reason why God allowed him to be arrested and to be taken to Rome is so that he could write letters like this for us. Otherwise, I think Paul would have been Mr. Busy and continued traveling and doing things. And it's hard to sit and pray and to write letters like this if you're you know, on a boat you know, as you're trying to write a letter. So that's the idea, I think. That's not, I can't back it up with any scripture. That's just Dwayne's opinion. So that and, um, what is it, $5 will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks or something else like that. So anyways, uh, but he's beseeching them, he's begging of them to walk worthy of the calling. You see, we've been called, but our walk or the way that we live our life is not so much about what we do. We don't walk worthy so that God will love us. Instead, because he does love us, that's why we walk the way that we're called to walk. Do you understand that? This is critical, I think, for all of us, because sometimes we get them confused. We think, oh, God will love me more if I fill in the blank, sing in the church choir, give more money to the church, go on missions trips, you know, um, take cold showers, whatever we might think is more spiritual. And then God will somehow love me more because I do those things. No. It's because of God's great love for us that then we have a desire to read his word. We have a desire to serve in various capacities, whether it's the patio ministry or the children's ministry or whatever else it might be. So our walk, our, our walk, the way we carry ourselves is because we know that we are the child of the king and he loves me and I want to represent him well. That's why. He's not going to love you more than he already does. But your behavior, your attitude certainly can break that fellowship with God. And so we need to be careful that we understand I do these things not because I have to, but because I want to. And I gain my relationship with the Lord grows as I take steps of faith, whether that's a missions trip or step out to serve in the children's ministry or show up here in the afternoons on Tuesday for the patio ministry and take a step of faith, my faith is built up. And so that's a good thing to do. Every believer is born again. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're born again and you're part of the kingdom of God. So we need to understand that and comprehend that we don't earn by our behavior more from God. Verse 2, look, look at this, verse 2 and 3. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another. So he's given us some details of how we are to walk, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. With all lowliness. Now, lowliness 
normally in, in our normal language or conversation would have something bad connected with it. It's the idea that somebody, maybe they're not educated or you know, they're, they're in bondage to some sinful activity or, or they came from the wrong side of the tracks kind of idea. But for a Christian, for somebody who's a believer in Jesus Christ, to be lowly is a glorious thing. It means that we can be happy and content, check this out, when we are not in control. When we're not steering or directing how things go. Think about it. Maybe your very first job. You didn't have a clue what you were doing. You just did whatever the boss said. Maybe it was, for me, it was frying fish and french fries in a fryer. And they told me how long to cook them. They told me how much to cook. And I just did what they said. Didn't require much in the way of mental acuity. It was put the stuff in the hot oil. And when it got to this color, pull it out. And I depended, you know, other people ordered the supplies and they took care of the money and all the other stuff. I just know that at the end of two weeks, I got a paycheck. And of course, I was shocked how much money the government took out of my paycheck. But anyways, or if you were in the service, the military, you know, when you first joined in, you were a, a private or in my case, a, a what they called a slick sleeve, which means I had no rank. So it was just nothing on my sleeves. Everybody else walking around me had stripes with different ranks, and I had nothing. I was lowly. I didn't make any decisions. I just did whatever they said. In our relationship with Jesus Christ, it's glorious to be lowly or to be dependent upon God. To be able to say, God, you're the king. You're in charge. I trust you. I'm just going to do what you say. I don't need to worry about world events because you're in charge and You've got me right here for today, and this is what I'm supposed to do, and that's all. So with lowliness and then gentleness, as we deal with one another, we're called to be gentle towards one another, which is just the opposite of what the world says. The world says you have to fight, you have to assert your authority, you've got to make sure that nobody takes advantage of you. And as a Christian, we're to be lowly. In other words, some, we're content to have somebody else be in charge. And we're to be gentle with one another. In other words, we're to use gentle words, gentle attitudes. And gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness really is strength under control. In the animal kingdom, I think of a, of a trained horse with just the touch on the side. A rider can direct the horse whichever direction. Now, that horse is much more powerful than any rider. What's usually funny is to see some petite, small girl directing this horse to jump and do this thing and that thing. And the horse could easily overpower her. But it's trained. It's gentleness under control. And, of course, the, the most biblical example is Jesus Christ himself, able to calm the storm, able to feed 5,000 with a few pieces of food, uh, able to raise Lazarus from the grave, but yet he was gentle. Think about the Samaritan woman, a woman of ill repute, a woman who'd been married multiple times in a culture where being married more than once was shamed on. And the man that she was living with currently was not her husband. And how did Jesus speak to her? He didn't condemn her. He ministered to her and directed her to the right path. He was gentle with her. The woman caught in the issue of adultery. Today, adultery is still a big deal, but culturally not nearly like it was in the time of Jesus. If somebody was caught in the issue of adultery, it was a capital offense. 
it didn't just mean that you got kicked out of your house. It was a capital offense. In other words, she deserved rightly to be killed. But Jesus was gentle with her. And so we see that in Jesus, that we might be right, but for us to be gentle with others. And then long-suffering. This is one of my least favorite words in all of the Bible because it has long and suffering mixed together. You know, long, good times, that sounds good to me. Let's have a good time for a long time. Hey, that sounds really good. Suffer, okay, but make it like measured in microseconds. You know, microseconds of suffering. But it's long-suffering. Another word that we use in the English language is spiritual. But long-suffering is the idea of somebody who has the ability to take revenge, but never does it. The ability to get back at somebody, but doesn't. Does that not sum up the heart of your Lord and Savior for you? He has every right to say to me, Dwayne, you have messed up too many times. I'm just done with you. And yet, he's long-suffering towards me. And if he's long-suffering towards me and towards you, we are called to be long-suffering towards one another. You might be right. You might have everything correct. But are you willing to forgive? You're willing not to seek revenge. And then bearing with one another in love, supporting one another, enduring sometimes difficult times, allowing somebody to have a bad day, in other words. Because God knows you never had a bad day, but it's always those other people, right? No, we have bad days too. We have days that we're just off or we're short or we're not feeling well or whatever thing is going on in our lives. But we also need to bear with one another. That is the idea of bearing up, supporting one another, being long-suffering with one another. And then verse 3, enduring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, when we say keep the unity, this is not for the sake of compromising biblical standards so that we can get along. And unfortunately, there's a movement afoot in pseudo-Christian circles called the ecumenical movement, which is the idea that, well, why can't we just find what's common amongst all these various religions and combine them together? Why can't Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity and Judaism just all find some common ground together and we'll all be united? Now, on the surface, to an unbiblically educated person, that sounds pretty nice, and that's why the world likes that idea. We'll solve all these problems in the world. We'll just all get along. But you all are biblically educated. You know the Bible is filled with love and compassion, but he says there's but one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. Islam does not teach that. Buddhism does not teach that. Islam does not teach that. They may recognize Jesus as one of many teachers, but Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to me except through the Father. Now, as Christians, we might disagree on other issues. Somebody may feel very comfortable with a very structured, liturgical sort of church service. 
Somebody else may feel very comfortable, you know, I don't know who does this, but maybe that's those weird California people, meeting at the beach, you know, and just having a, a service at the beach. Um, styles of music, dress, and so forth. We have all kinds of different things that we have the ability and the freedom to say, you know what, I, I like this better than that. But if we have the unity under Christ in the headship of Jesus Christ, then, yeah, we can work together on those things, but not for the sake of throwing away what we might call essential Christian faiths. So unity or the unity of the Spirit does not mean to maintain the unity of evil or the unity of superstition or the unity of spiritual tyranny. Spiritual tyranny, the idea that an authoritative, abusive structure might dictate to people what they might do. Unity of the Spirit does not mean endeavoring to keep all of our ecclesiastical arguments or to keep ecclesiastically, that's just a fancy word for kind of church government structure, centralized. That everything has to be centralized. That we have to find one common church and all of us have to submit to that church. That's not what it's saying. It does not say in endeavoring to keep uniformity. In other words, we all have to do it exactly the same way. It has to be Wednesday night service at 7 o'clock with exactly five songs with communion. That's the only way to do it. No, there are other ways to do it. Okay, so that's not what it means. But unity is the idea that we're one under Christ, under the headship of Jesus Christ. And so we can agree on that, and we ought to have unity. I think, for example, of missions, organizations, or endeavors, evangelistic crusades. I think of uh, the Harvest Crusades that were here two, two summers ago, and we joined in, and other churches joined in. Some of them were Calvary chapels. Others were not. Baptists, Pentecostals, whatever it might be, but they came together for the purpose of sharing the gospel. And I think that's a wonderful example of how we can do that. We might have different styles of how we worship or express ourselves, but we had unity. We want to present the gospel. And we know the gospel message is the only solution to the world's problems. And so that's where we can have unity. So with that, he gives us an additional support for that or a definition of the unity of the church here in verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. You see, we have unity because we are followers of Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. And he's, it's one Lord. If you're following Jesus... And if you've come to faith in Jesus and your salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, then we're united. You might speak a different language. You might have a different dress. You might live in a different part of the world, but we're united under that. Uh, we don't need to. It doesn't mean that everybody has to speak English or everybody has to speak Portuguese. Everybody has to do it a certain way or have to have a certain style of music. But we're one under the Lord. There's one faith, one God, one Father who is above all and through all. So we need to have unity as we submit to Jesus Christ. 
and that's what it's about. Now, this term one baptism, sometimes uh, people like to use it to sort of push their one specific thing. In other words, sometimes one baptism says, or they interpret it, that there's only one way to be baptized, or you can only be baptized in our church. It has to be this particular format. You know that we had a baptism last Saturday, and uh, we baptized somebody in a backyard pool. That's perfectly acceptable. You could do it in a baptismal. You can do it in a jacuzzi if you wanted to. You could do it in the lake or in the ocean or anywhere else. We do full immersion because if we have enough water. But if we didn't have enough water, if we were in the middle of a drought, in the middle of the desert, and all we had was a bottle of water, guess what? We'll pour the bottle of water over your head and call you baptized. That's, it's, the amount of water is not critical. And it's more the symbolism of us being immersed or dying to ourselves and raised to Christ. Or another way to put it is to be totally enveloped in Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about one particular church or one particular way of doing it. You don't need to have a special baptismal certificate that gets to be transferred from one church to another church or some other things. And sometimes people draw weird comparisons to things like this. Moving on to verses, uh, the last portion of this early part of chapter 4, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts, but spiritual gifts specifically to the church, not so much to individuals. Now, you may have heard of spiritual gifts. You know, sometimes we get confused. We think about some of the things that we argue over, even though we have unity under Christ, but then we argue over the gift of tongues. Is that for today or not? And what is it? And how does that do? But that's an individual gift, and that's something that we'll be happy to talk about some other time. What the text is speaking about this evening is gifts to the church, spiritual gifts to the church. And that's what we'll look at here. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice this, grace was given. Now, we've tried to define grace for you multiple times, but let me endeavor again. Grace Technically, we consider it unmerited favor. It's a gift. You didn't deserve something, but it's given to you. I certainly like to use a, the idea of God's resources at Christ's expense. I like to spell out that word and think about it, God's resources. First of all, for salvation, that I'm saved by grace. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, it told us this, that I'm saved by God's resources but it's because of the work of Jesus Christ. So certainly grace for salvation, but then grace for growing and gifting. It's the same idea. If God gifts somebody to be a missionary or an evangelist or something else, it's a gift that God gave to that person for the work of ministry for the church. And it doesn't mean that so-and-so was more spiritual. Sometimes it does mean, though, that they were willing to follow the Lord, and though maybe the Lord called you to the same sort of thing, but you said, uh-uh, I don't want to eat bugs in, in the middle of Africa or whatever else. But are you willing to go if God calls? And of course, the right answer is, yes, I should be willing. I'm lowly. You're my instructor, God. You're my commander. You're my king. If you say eat bugs in Africa, then that's what I ought to be able to do. But God would gift the church. So let's look at these by his grace. So, but to each one was great of, 
But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. There is no limit to how much Christ can give us. So it's not limited. It's not saying, okay, well, you know, God only has four evangelists. And so these four people get it. And I'm sorry, you're the fifth person in line. So you don't get the gift of evangelism. That's not how it works. Okay, so he has unlimited. And then he says, goes on here in verse eight. Therefore, he says, when he descended on high, he led captive captive and gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 68 and talking about when Jesus ascended. From the depths of death. And notice this, that Jesus, as he went away, he said to his disciples, John 16, 7, he said this, it is to your advantage that I go away. For I, if I do not go away, the helper, which we know as the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So one of those things, the gifts that God gives to us because of his ascension is the helper. The helper or the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not its part of the Trinity. It's nothing for us to freak out about. Maybe you've been in church services or you heard others talk about, well, the Holy Spirit made me do this thing and they did some weird thing. That's not the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's primary job is to remind us of the work of Jesus Christ and to point us back to him. The Holy Spirit oftentimes brings us conviction. It guides us. It directs us. It confirms God's word. When you're reading God's word and it's like like the letters are jumping off of the page and you feel convicted or you feel encouraged, guess who's doing that work? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can give you gifts of discernment or a word of knowledge, which are individual gifts for particular situations. Discernment is the idea of you walk into a situation, you go, oh, something's wrong here. You know, I know you, you look like this person, but something's amiss here. That's a gift of discernment. You say that you're a Christian, but... Something's wrong here. I don't know why, but something's wrong. Uh, word of knowledge might be the simple thing of, of you walk into a situation, you have no clue what's going on, and you say something, and somebody goes, how did you know that? <laughs> you get to go, I have no clue. I don't even know what I just said. But if God is working in your life, that was a gift of the word of knowledge, and go for it. So that's sometimes the Holy Spirit works in very apparent natural ways and those aren't the all the gifts but they're just mentioning a couple of them for you and so God gave us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is something that we're not to be afraid of the Holy Spirit is not going to make you do something that's unbiblical the Holy Spirit is not going to make you do something that you don't want to do the Holy Spirit may bring conviction he may bring conviction of your sin he may bring you conviction of maybe promises that you made towards God that you haven't yet fulfilled. You said, God, man, if you'll bless me, I'll do this. And then he blessed you and you just said, well, that was nice, but I forgot what I had promised. And then when the Holy Spirit brings that back to mind, by golly, you ought to follow through what you said you would do. Maybe it's something like giving or serving at the church or going on the next missions trip or whatever it might be. Even now as I'm speaking, you may be in the quietness of your own heart, say, man, there's this one issue. And every time he says Holy Spirit, it just bugs me. That one issue, I'm being convicted of that. I have no clue what that is. I'm saying that's a work of the Holy Spirit. So don't be afraid. Embrace and allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life. 
But he says here that each one is given that he might give us these gifts. And, the, and he's going to explain what these gifts are here in just a moment. Verse 9. Now this he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So sometimes we get confused or wrapped up in this particular passage when it talks about descending to the lower parts and rising up. And we certainly do know that Jesus went and proclaimed liberty to the prisoners or those that were in uh, what we call Abraham's bosom. In the idea that he set the spirits free, but it's not set them free in the sense that they didn't have faith, but in the sense that they had died before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think, for example, maybe a Abraham, let's just say. Abraham passed away before Jesus was able to fulfill all of the promises. So Abraham was looking, according to the book of Hebrews, was looking forward in faith, knowing that a Messiah would come, but not knowing exactly who, what, and where. And then Jesus shows up as Abraham is being comforted until the right time. Jesus shows up and says, okay, I'm the guy that fulfilled all those promises. I'm the guy that you put your faith in. Okay, so that's the idea. It's not that he preached the gospel and rescued people out of hell. No, hell is a place of damnation. It's a place that's reserved for uh, Satan and those that reject Jesus Christ. So we're talking about those who died before the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, who weren't able to come to full or complete faith because they simply didn't know yet. So that's the idea. Um, sometimes we use the, we in our English language, we get Hades and Gehenna confused. Hades is the place of the dead. It's not to be equal with hell. It's kind of a holding place for those that are dead. We think of Abraham's bosom would be like Hades. We use the word Gehenna. It's, a, it's literally a valley, a trash dump valley just outside of Jerusalem. It's a place that had fires continuously going. And that, that is more of a description of, of everlasting hell or damnation where the fire is never quenched. So what they did is they took a Greek word that described this valley that was a trash heap, that nothing worthwhile went into it, and it always had a fire uh, a flame in it, and it said everlasting death or everlasting damnation is like this place. But hell is a real place. I don't want you to be confused about that. Hell is a real place. So Jesus went. He announced, hey, I'm the guy that's done this. And then he also ascended into heaven. Now, verse 11 gives us uh, the listing, and there's really only four listing of what he gave to the church. Now, these are not gifts for individuals. These are gifts for the church. We might think of this more as the gift for the church universal. Not, specific, not, not every single local body is going to have all these gifts exercising in it, but the church universal. So verse 11, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, we'll talk about the pastor and teacher thing in, in a little bit. But let's look at those each individually. So apostles are special ambassadors for the work of God. Now, the first century apostles, we might think of Peter and Paul and, and John and James. Those were unique individuals 
for a specific purpose, and oftentimes we think of those as apostles. But there are other men that God has used throughout the church world that are, have had apostle-like ministries. You might think of somebody like Martin Luther with the Protestant Reformation. He was a man that God used to sort of set the church back on the right path. We might think of a Wycliffe or uh, William Booth with the Salvation Army. Uh, you might think of uh, somebody like a Chuck Smith that was used of the Lord in the late 60s, early 70s to establish the Calvary Chapel movement. And we would say he wouldn't call himself an apostle, but others would look to him and say this was a man that was uniquely used for God's work in this season. Okay, And I know in some settings, in some churches, they use the term apostle um, like we might use the term a, a pastor or bishop or something else like that. But it's a term that really is identifying an individual that has sort of an authority over the church in a very broad sense. Uh, first century apostles, of course, were used for the foundation of the church. They wrote most of the New Testament. And so in a very strict sense, you can say some would define apostle as only the first century. Others would say, no, but look at these men who've been used of God in great ways, not so much for the local body, but the church universal. Again, I might suggest to you maybe William Booth with the Salvation Army and how he redirected the church's focus back to be able to minister to people that were disadvantaged. And the Salvation Army continues today. We think of Martin Luther with taking the church from under the Catholic uh, umbrella of a very structured system and back in love with God's word. Maybe we think of a William Tyndale in the same way, a translator of the Bible who was used mightily of the Lord to bring people back in love with God's word and access or make God's word accessible to them. Those would be examples of apostle type of people. The next term, of course, is evangel or prophets. I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead. So a prophet is somebody who speaks forth God's word in complete consistency with both the Old and the New Testament. A prophet is not somebody who says, I think you ought to pick these numbers for the lottery. A prophet, you know, a person can have multiple roles. I think, for example, in our modern day, we might think of somebody like a Billy Graham. Now, of course, we think of him as a evangelist, but somebody who speaks God's word for several generations. And he was used to be able to speak to people in high positions as presidents and, and things like that. Uh, but somebody who's clearly speaking forth. Now, in the Old Testament, we have lots of examples of prophets. We'll be on Sunday morning studying the book of Hosea, which was a prophet for a nation that was rejecting God. And God directed him to use <laughs> his own personal life, his marriage and his children as a testimony about God's relationship with the nation. Ah. Uh, you might think of somebody like Jonah, who was a prophet as well, a rebellious prophet who said, I don't want to do what you want me to do. Uh, we might think of a Jeremiah and Isaiah and so forth. And some of those you could say would cross over in different ways because of how God used them. So it's not you get to pick one of these. But again, God does use and at times appoints or enables or gifts somebody with the gift of prophecy. And prophecy, again, is not what the weather's going to be like tomorrow, but prophecy is this is what God's word says, and we need to live it out. Sometimes in our world or as we get busy or 
we lose sight of our relationship with the Lord, it's easy for us to not understand that we this portion of the Bible applies to us. If you're caught up in the kind of the politically correct things in our world around us, it would be easy to lose the voice of God with this constant requirement to be politically correct with your language. We're not to be offensive on the purpose of being offensive, but we also still need to call sin, sin. You know, today we're being told that if you say to somebody who's sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend, if you say that sin, then you're a hater. That's not a hater. That's somebody that's just speaking forth God's word. Now, can you do it in a hateful way? Yes, you can. But you can speak forth the truth, and that's what the prophet does. So it could be uh, predictive, like a Jeremiah in some cases, an Isaiah, but it's not necessarily that. It's primarily somebody who's applying God's word to today's situation. It's discernment and sometimes even judgment on church leadership when somebody stands up and says, you as a church leader, you're going the wrong way. Um, again, just like with the apostles and prophets, uh, we don't have prophets in the same Old Testament sense walking around today like so-and-so is a prophet and says, thus saith the Lord. Why? Because God has revealed his word to us. So modern-day prophets or somebody who fills that role usually or most appropriately saying, this is what God's word says, and this is how we need to live. Um, I remember uh, he's home with the Lord now, but Richard Bennett was a man who was used like this at times, where God would, sometimes we'd call it a revival or an awakening, where God would use him to speak. He's just fundamentally teaching God's word, but he's expressing it in a way, calling people to live holy lives. I would say that was a man who used that, was used of the Lord in a prophetic sort of way. We might think of some of the great awakenings in America or, or Welsh awakenings and revivals and things like that where God uses people uh, specifically to call them back to a right relationship with the Lord. And then the next one that we're probably most familiar with is this term evangelist. And we use this term a lot. Sometimes we don't always use it in the way that God intended it, but the word evangelist simply means somebody who specifically called or gifted, I should use the word gifted, not called, somebody who's specifically gifted to preach the good news of Jesus Christ for salvation. I mentioned Billy Graham. You think of Billy Graham, you think of somebody who's an evangelist, gifted uniquely. Now, please understand, each and every one of us is called to do the work of an evangelist. Okay? That's what we're called to do. Each of us are called to share the gospel. But some are uniquely gifted to do it in ways that brings forth more fruit than somebody else. Now understand this. When it comes to this issue of evangelism or sharing your faith with others, there are times that you may be a seed planter in somebody's life, that you may be going to them and saying, you need Jesus, but they don't respond. You're a seed planter. Maybe you're somebody that comes along and says to them, remember, you need Jesus. You may be watering that plant. And then there's somebody else that comes along and harvests that. So uh, I think I've told you this story before, but many years ago, I was uh, visiting a prison uh, as a chaplain to help as uh, the chaplain there. We were supposed to do a chapel service, but it got canceled. And so the chaplain at that local prison asked if we would do some of these um, 
counseling appointments that she had. They called I-60s. And so um, this one person came in and said to me, I just need somebody to pray with to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Would you do that with me? Um, sure. And as I began to talk with her more and she shared more, her cellmates had been sharing the gospel with her. Their cellmates had been planting the seed. They had been watering. Their lifestyles demonstrated the love of Christ to her. And she came to the point where she felt, although this wasn't necessary, but she felt this way, that she needed to have somebody who was, in her terms, religious, pray with her to receive Christ. So that's what we did. That's not the gift, really, of the evangelism. That's just somebody being available at the right time to be able to say, sure, let's pray. Some of you may have situations like that. Others of you may be uniquely gifted that the moment somebody sneezes and you say, God bless them, the next thing you do is you're sharing the gospel with them and the person in the middle of the street is on their knees praying and asking God to come into the life. That's cool. Not everybody's going to have that gift. Talked about Billy Graham. We mentioned uh, Greg Laurie. He's a pastor, but he's also an evangelist. He has a unique way of gifting to share the gospel. It's not that his messages are special or unique from a purely sermon sort of way, but he has the gift of evangelism, and that's just fine. If you have the gift of evangelism, exercise it, use it. If you don't have the gift of evangelism, you're still called to do the work of evangelist. Like me, when somebody says, hey, will you pray for me? You say, yep, sure, I'll pray for you. And that's cool because God gives different gifts to different people for different purposes. So again, these giftings, the apostles, that would be again the early foundation, but then these men that God has used for great movements of God, sort of redirecting the, the church universal back onto the right path. Uh, prophets that are calling people primarily to repentance or to live their life right before the Lord. Those are gifts to the church, not to the local church body, but to the church universal. And then you've got people like a Greg Laurie and, and used to be Billy Graham that were evangelists that are gifted to the church world. Billy, uh, excuse me, Greg Laurie can't pastor everybody that's ever come forward at a, at a crusade. That's why he follows the same model that Billy Graham did, and that is looking for local churches to follow up with people. And Billy Graham would never go to a city unless there was a group of churches in that local city to follow up with individuals because Billy Graham would come into a city and do a crusade and then leave. And it's up to the local churches to disciple and cause them to grow. But it doesn't mean Billy Graham was of less value. It's just a different role in ministry. And then the fourth one is pastor and teacher. So in the original Greek language, it the, it's really should be looked at this way, pastor dash or hyphen teacher. So they're really twofold, or it's, it's really one office. It's not some are pastors and some are teachers. It's really pastor-teacher. And it's an individual who's called by God to shepherd the flock of God primarily, but not exclusively through the teaching of God's word. That's why the pastor-teacher combination. You see, what we're trying to do is teach you. What I'm trying to do is teach you God's word so that you would grow in your walk with God. I'm not trying to be in your business on a daily basis and ask what you had for lunch 
and what kind of car you drive and what kind of house you, you live in and expect me to direct all those things. But I certainly want to be available and I am available as you have different issues in your life that come up and you're looking for biblical direction. Uh, that's what I do. Uh, when people come in for what sometimes is called counseling, what it really is is biblical counseling. And what I say to people when we sit down is, look, what we're going to do is we're going to seek we're going to seek the Lord. We're going to pray. We're going to pray with you that God through his word would give you advice or counsel on what you need to do or how to resolve things. If there's things in your heart that need to be changed, that God would do that. And that's what the ministry of a pastor really is. It's not he only shows up on Sundays and does his message and then golfs six days of the week. I, I don't know who those guys are. You know, or rides around in a luxury jet or whatever else it might be. Uh, but that's the role of a pastor teacher. Now, these gifts are given for the church. I'm called to be a pastor teacher, but it's not for me. And if you were to go to some other church and you were to go to that church and say, well, there's a good pastor teacher. Understand that pastor teacher, that gifting is not for that individual. It's for the church body. Usually in a pastor-teacher role, it's for a local church body. Teaching is an essential part of the pastoral ministry. It's not all of it, but it's an important. And we need to understand that it's a gifting for somebody. If I'm able to explain the Bible to, to you in a way that makes sense, understand God gets all the credit. Okay, You know that I fumble my words sometimes, and sometimes I make up new words on the fly. Sometimes I get lost in my own train of thought. But if God is speaking to you, that's a sign of the Holy Spirit working. Remember, we started off with this concept, the idea that Jesus left the earth, that he would send the helper, the Holy Spirit. And I'm saying to you, if something I say this evening or some other time impacts you, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not because I'm clever because it's a work of God. So God gave these gifts to the church, these specific offices, we might call them. An apostle, somebody to sort of oversee a direction of the church in a, in a large way. Prophets that oftentimes, it can be predicted, but usually it's calling people back to repentance or a right relationship with God. And then evangelism is the idea of sharing the gospel with people, whether it's individually or in large group settings. And then, of course, the pastor teacher. But why did God give all of these gifts, these four specific gifts for the church? Verse 12 tells us that. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. God gave these gifts specifically that you and I would be equipped to do the work of the ministry. The reason why there are prophets who speak forth God's word and sometimes really convict us is because it's equipping us to do the work of ministry. The reason why God has used apostles, and we mentioned some of them, maybe, a, again, a Booth, a, a Chuck Smith, a Martin Luther, or any others. The reason God uses them is to equip us for the work of ministry. The reason why God gifts evangelists is not for us to be jealous, but that others can come to know Jesus for the equipping of the ministry that you and I would be equipped. And the pastor-teacher role is specifically to equip you for the work of ministry, to 
expound upon, explain what the scriptures mean so that you can do the work of ministry, not to beat you up, not to hold your arm behind your back and twist it, but that you would be equipped to do the work of ministry for us to understand how much God loves us and that God wants to use you. Even if you failed in the past, God wants to use you. This word equipping is the idea of putting something back together. In the original Greek language, it has the idea of somebody who has a broken bone and setting it back right. That's what it means by equipping. So we are called, or these offices are called, to equip you, to mend you back right with Jesus so that you can feel better about yourself. Nope. So that you can have a peaceful life. Nope. So that you can do the work of ministry. You all know the Bible. You understand that in the Bible there are many people who did the work of the ministry, but it wasn't a peaceful existence for them. Nothing wrong with the pursuit of happiness and peace, but that's not a biblical standard. Nothing wrong with us desiring to have things and to live at peace with one another. That's a good thing. But you're called as individuals and us as a body to do the work of ministry, to put people back together. That's why we do the patio ministry. It's not that because we're just trying to get rid of the junk food from Tom Thumb. We want to minister to those high school students. And the good thing about most of the high school students that come here and hang out, they're the ones that aren't involved in academics. They're the ones that struggle with school. They're the potheads. They're not athletes. They're not involved in this thing and that thing. And they're hanging out in front of our building because... There's nobody to pick them up until four or five. And so they're just hanging out. What a wonderful, fruitful ground to be able to plow in, to plant seeds, to water, that their lives would be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would not be potheads, that they would not be just wasting their lives, that they would know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Does it sometimes make it difficult to minister to them? Yeah. It's kind of hard to minister to somebody who's more interested in toking than anything else. But what fruitful ground that God can transform a life. So we're called to do this for the working of the ministry. That is to minister to one another and edifying, building up the body of Christ. That's the idea, to edify, to build up the body of Christ. Verse 13, till we come together in the unity of faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, we need to understand this idea of a perfect man is the idea of fullness or completeness, not sinless perfection, but we're looking at unity of faith, not in an organizational structure, but that we're all unified under the banner of Jesus Christ. For us to be able to look past some of our differences, whether that be skin color or language or economics, and be able to say, there's a brother, there's a sister in Christ. That we would be willing to pray for men and women that we've never met across the globe because they're under the headship of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. And that we would have this unity, that we should no longer, verse 14, be tossed, or excuse me, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, 
in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Do you understand that there are people out there, there are organizations out there that are trying to trick you? They're trying to be crafty, deceitful, to trick you, to cause you to be tossed to and fro. Every wind of doctrine, some new idea that comes across. In the ancient world, the, the idea of tossed to and fro was the idea of being in a stormy ocean. Maybe in the middle of a hurricane or in the middle of a lake with a huge storm. In other words, you're just going every place. You don't know which way is right. You see, the reason we specifically at this church try to keep the word of God central is so that we're not tossed to and fro. That when you hear somebody say something, you can go, hmm, I wonder if that's really in the Bible, if that fits with what the Bible says. You may remember in the book of Acts, Paul had come from the city of Thessalonica down to the city of Berea, and he said the Bereans were more noble or fair-minded because they studied the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. I encourage you, study the scriptures. Look at what I say. Is it true? If you've got questions, I'm happy to talk with you about those kinds of things. And notice the trickery of men. It's the idea of using gadgets or trickery to deceive somebody. It literally comes from the idea of loaded dice. Have you ever played a, a game that has dice in it, and all of a sudden all sixes keep coming up? Why is that? Because they loaded them. In other words, they're, they're false dice. They don't play fair. That's the idea. That's the idea that they're not playing fair with you. It's that trickery. And yes, there are individuals whose sole desire is to trick you and I, to get us focused on something else other than our relationship with Jesus Christ. But what are we to do? Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. We're called to speak the truth. When somebody tells you a fable, you're supposed to speak the truth in love. Not speak the truth however I want to speak it, or because I want to be loving, I don't want to offend you, and I don't want to tell you the truth. Both of them speak the truth in love. When somebody says, hey, I found this new way that helps me grow in Jesus, and it's, you know, I don't know, some dietary supplement or something, you can say, uh-uh. It might be good for your physical body, but that's not helping you grow spiritually. And you can say to them, that's not biblical. I love you as a brother. Let me show you the verses. But understand, your diet pill or your special diet doesn't make you grow closer in love with Jesus. And so we can speak that truth. When somebody says, oh, I think Jesus had all these different forms, we can say, no, that's not how he was. When people say, well, I don't think the Trinity's in the Bible, the word Trinity's not in the Bible. The concept of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit are throughout the scriptures. We can go all the way from Genesis chapter 1 to the book of Revelation, and we can find the idea of the Trinity. Somebody might say, well, the rapture isn't something in the Bible. And it's true. The word rapture is not in the Bible. It's from the Latin word, which means to snatch up. But the concept, the idea of a sudden snatching away or being carried away certainly is a biblical concept. And so we can say to them, look, I think you've been misled. And let me explain some of these things to you. There's somebody, I don't know how he got on my Facebook feed, 
but every day he posts like three or four postings, something along the lines of, you're under bondage if you give to the church. I don't know who this guy is, but that is a unbiblical thing. We're called to give. Now, the dollar amount is between you and the Lord. Corinthians is quite clear. We're called to give, but we're to give with a generous heart. Are there some churches and some organizations that overplay that and try to guilt you into giving more? Yes. That doesn't mean we shouldn't give because somebody else did something wrong. Should you exercise wisdom in how you give? Yes. But just because you saw somebody abuse something doesn't mean that you yourself should not give. Now, again, the giving is between you and the Lord. It's up to you what you give, how much you give, when you give. The Bible certainly gives us guidelines, but if somebody says to you, you shouldn't give to the church, that's a false doctrine. Now, again, are there people that have abused things? Certainly. Are there those that have said, oh, I can't accept any of the spiritual gifts because I saw somebody do something really weird and they said it was the Holy Spirit's fault? That's a valid complaint, but that's not valid to toss away the gifting of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does want to work in our lives. And again, the letter to the Corinthians is full of instructions on how to handle those kinds of things. So, verse 16. From whom the head is Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causing growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You see, all of us have a part to play. Maybe you have the gift of evangelism, but you're scared to use it. Maybe you have some other gift, the gift of prophecy, word of knowledge, or discernment, but you're intimidated to use it because you heard somebody else say, well, that's, that, that's just Ibrahim-Jewish. Don't buy into that. Let God use you. Again, this is not an exclusive list. These were, this is a list specifically of offices or how God wants to give these offices to the church for our equipping that we might be a part of the body of Christ. God wants each of us to see the church as a body. It's not a, a pyramid with, you know, pastor at the top. We are a body. Now, how can you say my right hand is more important than my left foot? If I don't have my right hand, how in the world am I going to feed myself? If I don't have my left foot, how can the world can I get from, you know, the, the bed to the table to eat? How can I say my eyes are more important than my ears? They're not. They all function together. And then there's parts of our body that are critical that we don't see. You know, your lungs, your heart, your stomach, your blood. We don't see those kinds of things, but they're critical for our life. There are people who died that looked perfectly healthy, but they died of a stroke or a heart attack because internally something malfunctioned. We, I, I think it's funny in our culture that generally we spend quite a bit of time making sure our hair is okay. Even guys do this. You know, guys that are going bald, we, we buy all kinds of money to put junk on our head to make it look like we're not bald or whatever else. Your hair is probably one of the least valuable parts of your body. You will function just fine if you're bald. Okay? I'm not saying I want to be bald, but you'll still function. 
But if you stub your toe, it hurts a whole lot more than losing the hair on your head. But we tend to make a big deal about the hair and less about the toe. So, what are you in the body of Christ? Are you this long flowing hair that everybody likes to look at? Or are you the toe that gets stubbed, but when you get stubbed, it affects the whole body? Maybe you're a finger. Maybe you're a, a, an organ inside internally. Maybe you're the kidney or the liver or the lungs or the heart. But you're also part of that. And the whole body functions, not because one part is more important than another part, but because we're functioning together under the leadership of Jesus Christ. And that way we can be lowly, humble, and gentle, speaking the truth in love, giving God glory for the gifts that he does give to the church, because it's all about Jesus Christ. It's not about me.